with my good friend, Bonnie Young. We did our bachelor's together in the School of Family Life. And then she went on to get her master's in marriage and family therapy. Since that time, she's done both her research and her clinical experience, specializing on sexual issues in both individuals and families. And so I've asked her today to be here to talk with us about pornography and look at some of the research and what kind of implications it has for individuals and families. I know that's a question that a lot of you have, that some of you have some experience with. And so I just wanted to address that and maybe kind of help answer some of your questions around that issue. Thanks for joining us today, Bonnie. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I kind of wanted to start with some kind of broad level stuff. We've heard a lot of messages about pornography, and I think it's maybe scared us. So I want to maybe talk about the research so that we can see what that looks like. So talk a little bit about what the research tells us about how pornography influences relationships. And we can brush on maybe in a general, how it affects the user and how it affects partners and the relationships together, just whatever research you have, go ahead and talk to us about what you've learned. Okay, cool. Actually, if it's okay, before diving into the research. Absolutely. Um, Whatever you want. This is your show. (laughs) I was going over my notes before we started today, and I came across this quote that I've used in a couple presentations that I've given before, and I just love it. I'm hoping that my message today, what I share with you, will be really congruent with this quote. And it comes from Elder Oaks. He says, now a word regarding how we treat those who have been ensnared by pornography. All of us need the atonement of Jesus Christ. Those struggling with pornography need our compassion and love as they follow needed principles and steps of recovery. Please do not condemn them. They're not evil or without hope. They're sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. I feel like that just kind of sets up um, perfectly kind of the the tone. I think you're totally right. There is a lot of research out there and a lot of really bold research. And what I mean by bold research is research that makes really big claims on the effects of pornography. And the thing is, is the, the field of pornography research is still emerging. It's still kind of new. And that's not to say that we can't get any quality findings on what pornography does, but I think it's important to recognize that. And it's important to recognize that there's any studies out there that are making really, really bold claims about all pornography use or all pornography users, it's probably not that quality. It's probably based more in fear or or in the morals of the person doing the research right. than in actual scientific findings. So I think one thing I, I really hope to like empower the listeners with is kind of this discerning eye, like, okay, I'm looking at this research, I'm hearing this claim, how broad of a stroke is this claim painting? Like, is this too much to actually be real? (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I think also maybe you can talk about this too. When I was in school, there was still a lot of debate about what actually defines pornography too, right? Oh, yeah. Because that's different for researchers, depending on your background. Definitely. Yeah. I think we find in more conservative circles, like at BYU, pornography could be just like a still photo. Whereas for someone else, like a very graphic video or a very, you know, intense video, that's what they would call pornography. And if we're looking at the effect of both of those things, (laughs) right, there's going to be a lot of difference between what a still photo does versus 
uh, graphic depiction of, of sex. So, so I think uh, that's important to note going into this as well for those who are listening that maybe kind of assessing what your personal definition of pornography is. Definitely. I also think it's really important to recognize, and this is based not only in my clinical experience as a therapist, working with people striving to overcome pornography use, but also in the research, is that the people who are really, you know, their use is extremely compulsive, their use is uh, affecting their daily life, they can't hold down a job, they're lying, they're stealing, they're, they're watching really maybe kind of coercive or violent pornography, right? Those people are the, um, sorry, right now I am combining Spanish brain with pregnant brain. So. <laughs> Bonnie is living <laughs> in Barcelona right now. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm like brain dead for a second here as I'm trying to. So the people who fall into that category are the minority. That's, that's not your main user. And also it's important to recognize that a lot of research done on those people who do fall into that category, the results are going to be very different than your average user kind of we might have uh, around us. So Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a really great preface. Sometimes I think we apply sweeping generalizations to the research and mm -hmm what we need to do is kind of dissect a little bit and then go and look at the research for what it is. So yeah. would you like to talk about the research first or you did kind of talk about the minority and maybe the difference between addiction and habit? Yeah, let's jump into that. Let's jump okay. into the addiction versus habit. So number one, I will say that the term addiction is used again really commonly kind of in your day-to-day -day circles. In the research circles that do a lot of really quality research on pornography, that word is actually quite contested. And the reason why is because, again, this is such a new field of research, but compulsive pornography use looks quite different than compulsive substance abuse, which is normally what we talk about with addiction. Although there are things that can be very similar, kind of the mechanics of it all uh, looks quite different. Right. One thing that we see a lot in the research is that the pornography user's perception of their use as kind of normal or as an addiction actually really influences how much power they feel like they have over their use. So that might sound kind of confusing, but maybe to say it another way, let's say we have uh, person A and person B and person A is very religious and they've been in circles where pornography use, no matter what it looks like, it's, it's all called addictive. But right. they're only using it maybe once a week or once every other week. And then you have person B who's grown up thinking that uh, pornography use is just kind of part of life or it's just kind of normal and they use it a few times a week. We see in the research that person A, who's come from this culture of all use is addiction, that they actually feel like they have less power over decision making. They feel much more compulsive, much more out of control. Whereas person B, who grew up in a culture where maybe this was something that didn't need to be so secretive or wasn't so shameful, wasn't a reason why they'd be kind of outcast. They feel much more 
able to kind of stop their use or not use it if they choose not to. And I hope that the listeners aren't thinking what I'm saying here is that if you just think pornography is okay, then you can stop using it. I, I really don't think that that's a healthy answer. Yeah, or an <laughs> yeah that's, that's not what we're saying. But what I am saying is that a lot of times users will perceive their use as an addiction when really their use could be explained in a better way, not as an addiction, yeah. not as something that's completely out of their control. I think what you're saying is that words have power, that when we say the word addiction, it feels heavy and it feels inescapable and it can create an environment within our mind that what we're doing is inescapable. And talking to Mark Butler, who he does therapy with pornography a lot, and he yeah. talked about research on how the spouse reacts to their spouse saying, hey, I've looked at pornography. The way that they respond has a big influence on their recovery period. That if it's not about shame or about fear, if it's more of a supportive, thank you for telling me, thank you for being open and honest, it can really empower the user to say, oh, the shame and the fear almost perpetuate the problem. Exactly. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? 100%, 100%. And I think when you think about any habit or any behavior that's surrounded by shame or fear, those things are so much harder to control. And I think kind of a healthy way to look at this is maybe kind of opening our scope a little bit and looking at other behaviors that are similar, like maybe binge eating or maybe, and I know that these parallels aren't going to be perfect, but maybe there's other behaviors that you feel ashamed of and that you keep secret. Well, we know from really reliable research that anything that's secret or anything that's hiding is going to make the person who's hiding it more likely to do it in the future right. and more unhappy with themselves and more um, isolated, which again, isolation is another huge thing that drives more habitual use. And, and so I think you're really right. I think you hit the nail on the head there that these behaviors are perpetuated so much by shame and fear and secrecy. Right. I think those are the things that when I'm working with clients, those are the first things that we address more than the use, more than, you know, what are you using and how often are you using it? Those are the things that actually, when I work with clients, those are the things that make a difference that if we can address that, that they can find so much healing and hope. And I think that that is a really great point to make for individuals who are listening that have a habitual use of pornography, that mm -hmm. Even though it may not be an addiction, even though it may not be affecting your daily life and you can't hold a job, and even though it may not have escalated to that point, that's why therapy and groups alone could be helpful because it, it's no longer a secret. You're sharing it and you're creating a support group to take you out of the isolation. Even if you have a habit, you're sharing it with someone, even if it's a safe friend um, who you think would be non-judgmental and helpful, or if it is going to see a therapist, you know, even if this is like a once a month or twice a year or whatever, and you're feeling shame around it, I'm biased. Every single one of these things that, that we do, you guys will hear me say therapy is great. I'm a big proponent. All my friends are therapists, but those kinds of things can help kind of destigmatize and help you kind of start that healing process to release the power that it can have on you. Anything else on that, that subject of addiction versus habit? Yeah. Just one more thing, kind of what you were talking about as far as being able to just 
get it out. Because some people normally, if someone has struggled with pornography use or has used it in the past and, and they don't want to, normally the first step is I'm going to do this by myself. Yeah. I don't need to tell anyone. I'm just going to like somehow get more self-control, white knuckle it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to make it through. And then most people find that that doesn't work. And most people find that that's a really kind of a, a disempowering experience because they feel like, okay, well, I must not be strong enough yeah. you know, to do this. Yeah. And there is something kind of magical, I think, healing about just sharing with someone. And if it's a therapist, great. If it's a friend, awesome. If it's your bishop, you feel like this is something that needs to be addressed with your bishop, great. But there's just so much healing that can come from um, just kind of sharing your secret with someone. So one of the things that I work on with my clients is, okay, what beliefs about yourself is this pornography use creating or has it created, right? So one of my clients is, you know, as we were talking about this, he said, oh, I've, I've never thought about this before. But now that you're asking me, like, I have all these really damning beliefs, like no one's ever going to want to marry me. Um, I'm never going to be worthy. I'm not good enough. And right, if we're feeling that way, it's even more likely that we're going to fall into that habit. Yeah. When we can have a little bit more realistic and compassionate and loving view of ourselves. Right. It creates the cycle. If you have these beliefs about, about maybe being damned or about maybe being not worthy, then that can kind of perpetuate the habit, right? It creates a cyclical behavior. I wanted to end with this, but let's just do it now because I think it's a great Go segue into how partners and family members can respond to help these individuals. And obviously that Elder Oaks quote was amazing, but what, what can we do as supporters? I think it really depends what your relationship with the user is. If this is my, if this is my husband and he's secretly been using pornography for 10 years without my knowledge, my role in how we address pornography in the relationship is going to be very different than if this is my girlfriend, who, you know, right? I think Number one, and I think this is a really healthy perspective to have if you are using pornography currently or if you are close to someone using it, is that ultimately it comes down to the user to make choices. And no one can drive healing or recovery unless it's their own decision. And I see a lot of partners, this happens a lot, I think, kind of with wives and husbands. If the husband's struggling, the wife feels like, okay, we're going to check in, we're going to do this kind of responding to these situations with lots of anxiety, lots of need to control, which is so mm -hmm. normal. It's so yeah. normal. Of course right, you respond right, like yeah. that. Of course yeah. you do. I'm like that with my husband but in the dishes. <laughs> like, <laughs> something bigger, I could see that happening. Oh yeah, because you want to protect yourself. You right. want to protect yourself. Yeah. And you've been so hurt and surprised. And, and a lot of times there's like some trauma that goes on with, oh, there's this huge thing in our relationship I had no idea about. Am I stupid? Yeah. Am I right? You don't want to feel that again. But normally that really controlling response helps nobody. There, there are healthier ways to go about this. The basis of that controlling behavior or one of the foundations of that controlling behavior is the belief that I as the wife or I as the partner have the power to change this behavior in my spouse. And that's just not true. It's just not true. You don't right. because it has to be the choice. Now that's different than saying you can have, you know, constructive conversations about this. You guys can kind of make a, a plan together, but um, 
I think together yeah. is the key word. It has to be a joint decision, right? It has to be a, would it be helpful for you if we made a plan? And giving them the option. And if they say no and they're not ready, then waiting that out. Yeah. And seeking your own healing instead of, you know, in that situation, instead of trying to focus on how do I fix this other person, use this as a time to heal yourself and seek out resources that are going to heal you that's not based on the behavior of your partner. So that's kind of as a, as a romantic partner, as a friend, and as a parent, I think responding just with so much love and so much understanding and, and so much compassion, right? Maybe I've, I've worked with a lot of people who, who come to me and they say, I just don't understand how anyone could want to use pornography. That just doesn't appeal to me. While that might be their experience and that's valid too, I think bringing an attitude like that to someone who's seeking help probably isn't going to be the most helpful thing, <laughs> right? Like, right. I just don't get why that's kind of the opposite of the, of the attitude that is going to be helpful and constructive. And, um, and if you're struggling to know how to like muster that compassion inside yourself, think of something that you struggle with. Yeah. Think of a mistake that you make all the time. And I think that will help you <laughs> be <laughs> right. a right. little bit more compassionate. And we all, we all have those things. We all do. I think something that I've found helpful with people that I know who are working through this is to kind of put away my thoughts and beliefs and opinions on the matter and say, what can I do to help? What are you looking for in this space? Are you looking for advice? Are you looking for comfort? What role can I play? In my experience, that has created some space for them to kind of feel like, oh, I'm okay. Like the very first moments can be really impactful for the individual. Yeah. If someone comes to you with any problem, whether it's pornography use or a, or a family problem or whatever it is, a lot of us have the automatic response to want to like give solutions or to fix something. I think no matter what the problem is that someone's coming to talk to us about, often the most healing thing is just that love and the support. And yeah, like you said, how can I best support you? How can I best love you and, and help you? Because as, as much as we might think that we have answers, we probably don't have the exact answers for the person that's coming to us. And a lot of times, it's much right. better to listen than to talk. What's in our last little bit here? Maybe touch on the research a little bit. I know we're going to start with that, but let's round it out with some research and okay. some Do it. some fun facts, maybe. <laughs> fun facts. So... Uh, actually, just so kind of going back to this idea that um, compulsive use or what some people might refer to as addictive use is actually kind of the minority of users. When I was at, at BYU, one of the studies that I did, which was done focused on emerging adults, so like ages 18 to 30, only like 10% of users fell into the category of actual compulsive use. So again, that's just a little fun fact, <laughs> a fun figure for us, right? This is the minority. Define compulsive yeah, so use is, on that specifically. Yeah, is I'm using this and I don't want to use it. I feel like I am stuck in this cycle of use that I don't want to be in. Only 10% of emerging adults. Yeah. So, okay. So bigger picture research, sexual scripting theory is this idea that we learn different scripts from the media that we are exposed to. So just like you might watch a romantic movie and from that you're learning the script of oh how a relationship emerges like oh you 
pass each other on your commute and then one day you get stuck and then you <laughs> have right. a deeper conversation and then and then the guy gets the girl's number and then the guy calls the girl right that's like kind of a script right. for how a relationship emerges well sexual scripting theory is this idea that we learn kind of the who what when where why of sex through sexual media that surrounds us and the reason I, I think that it's really important to understand that is because from the research that I have done personally and the research that I believe to be kind of quality research is that's, that's the biggest effect that pornography has on us. And I'm, I say pornography, but I also mean just all sexual media. Yeah. Um, this doesn't just have to be, you know, videos that are kind of explicit. This can be a commercial. This can be music. A music video. Yeah. So... I think that is where we see the most reliable research being done is what is sexual media or what is pornography creating in terms of our beliefs about how sex happens, when sex happens, yeah. what sex should look like in a relationship, what people should look like physically. There's lots of harmful messages about sex that get conveyed in, in sexual media. And I think that's a reason why it's so important to actually be quite educated about sex so that you can point out the lies. Because if you're not educated, you're probably going to believe that. Or yeah. you won't have anything to compare that against and so I think a lot of times we're really hesitant to be educated about sex we think that not talking about it is going to like increase our strength or our virtue when in reality we live in such a sex saturated world we have to be empowered to be yeah. messages about sex around us and a lot of the clients that I worked with when we talk about some of the beliefs that they've learned from sex or some of the things that they've learned about sex and we've talked about just how false they are it kind of disempowers the pornography a little bit. Like that is so silly or that is a huge lie. And now I can see that and I feel kind of some power over this. Whereas before it was just kind of maybe more mysterious or sorry, I'm kind of going off on a tangent. No, I think, I think it's a really great tangent. I think we struggle to find good ways to educate ourselves and our children about sex. And I just wanted to, I had this revelation a couple of years ago, not like, you know, from, I mean, maybe it was from God, I don't know. <laughs> but um, a realization, we'll go with that. Okay. I realized that sex is God-given. We talk about how it's sacred and how it's, it's this procreative power, but I think we forget that it was given to us by God and that it's our job to reclaim it from the world. I think a lot of times we say, oh, there's so much sexuality in the world and we need to protect ourselves from that. And, and I don't think it's about protecting ourselves. I think it's about redefining the script for ourselves. I think it's about recognizing the counterfeits and saying this is a counterfeit perception of sexuality and then working with our, you know, our children or even working within our marriage to kind of redefine that and say, what does this actually look like from God's perspective? And I think that we can, you know, there's some really great resources out there. I think sexual wholeness and marriage is really great. Um, there's a book, Come As You Are, that is also really great. There's some, just some like really great resources out there for us as members of the church that are research-based, that are also based in doctrine that can kind of help us gain a healthy perspective of what sex is. And so I think that's a really powerful tangent that we both just went on. <laughs> <laughs> because I think it's it's relevant. I think when we identify sex as something that Satan's trying to do to tempt us or as something that the world is pushing into our lives, it's not about fighting it. It's about rebranding it 
in the Lord's way. I agree. I'm actually working on a project right now called Sex Educated. And one of my favorite parts of it is kind of doing just what you're saying. And one of the points that we discuss a little bit in in one of the chapters is what's carnal and sensual, right? We kind of use those like scriptural words. What's carnal and sensual about the sex in mainstream media isn't that it's sex. It's that it's using other people's bodies. It's focusing on sex, not as a relationship between two committed and loving partners, but it's sex as an act. Yes. Something that you just do. It's, it's fixation on the physical, this very fragmented picture of this, like you said, like this God given beautiful part of life that he allows us to experience. And I think that is what is carnal and sensual and devilish, right? It's not yeah. the sex. I'm excited to see what that project is in the future. So it affects our sexual scripts. Does that mean that it influences our expectations for sex? Does that mean that it influences how we interact with partners? What exactly does that mean? Yeah, so there's one study that maybe I'll kind of focus on that came from some researchers out of BYU. And one of the things that the study showed is that the couples who were using pornography were significantly less satisfied with the time spent on lovemaking and with the love and the affection expressed in the sexual relationship. And if you think about it, like, yeah, are those things like really caring and nurturing and loving foreplay ever shown in pornography? No, is like doing the dishes or like listening to someone talk about their hard day. Is that ever shown in pornography? No. And so the things that we see actually make couples happy in their relationships and their sexual relationships is basically never shown in pornography. And that's just another way that sexual scripting kind of comes up in the research. So we just have to be really deliberate about, again, not just pornography, but any sexual media that we're watching. Like, how is that affecting how I think that sex should happen? That's a really powerful piece of research because I think we hear these messages, pornography is harmful. It's, you know, all these really crazy terms that we use for it, but we don't really know how. Like we're told that in the church, but the question is how? And I think it makes it bigger and scarier when you don't know how it's actually influencing your relationship. You're like, this could implode at any time. And I think that's a really empowering piece of research that what this does is it takes the love out of what's supposed to be this really empowering bonding experience. And exactly like you were talking about, it focuses on the physical piece in the book, Come As You Are. It's a highly research-based book, and that's why I love it. And she talks about how sex starts after the last session of sex ended. It's everything that happens in between. It's all of the love and the service and the the connection that's happening in between. That's when it starts. It's not about deciding to have sex in that actual act. There's so much more to it. And like you were talking about, pornography takes all of that out. And so that's a really, really helpful piece of research. Is there anything else that you would like to share in the last little bit? Things that you think are helpful or last pieces of research? There's so many things, so many ideas. Just that if there are people that are struggling with this right now or will struggle with it in the future, or maybe will be close to people struggling with that in the future, I just want there to be this knowledge that there's so much hope. And although you know, I think we have really kind of harsh reactions to sins that are sexual in nature. Just because yes. we hear how serious they are, 
their misuse of such important powers. And I, I want to say this really carefully because I don't want it to be misunderstood because I do think that anytime that we're using or we're uh, using our sexual powers in a way that God has not intended, I don't think that is something that will ever add to our happiness. But God sent us here to earth to learn how to use our bodies. And that is a huge task. And we're yes. all going to make mistakes, no matter what form of physical experience it is, whether it's sexual or exercising or eating healthy or whatever it is, right? Like yeah. one of the huge tasks of this life is learning how to treat our body in a godly way. And God sent us here knowing that this would be a struggle. And I think those of us that live right now, I think he knew that we would be bombarded by so much temptation and so many opportunities to slip up and and we will all slip up we will all come short but there's just so much hope and i think the first step in being able to overcome and to heal is just sharing sharing your story with someone and just getting the truth out there and trying to find healthy spaces where you can do that and if you need to do it often find it make it happen just remember that we are all making mistakes none of us are perfect and your mistakes are not worse than anyone else's mistakes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all 100% in the same boat. We're all too short. And just remember that you are worth the exact same amount as every other person on this planet. We are all worth the same amount to Heavenly Father. And that this does not define you. It's something you're working on, which exactly like you said, the rest of us are all working on something. And I think that perspective can really help alleviate some of that shame or burden that individuals feel. Thank you so much for being with us today, Bonnie. I feel like we didn't even cover a tenth of what we could have covered on this, and so we will have to have another one. I just want to thank you for being here today, and we really appreciate having you. Thanks for having me.